Have you ever had a goal that just seemed impossible? If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Consistent Runner Girls and Notable Peeps, the series that gives attention to remarkable people who are putting on their shoes, doing their best, and believing in the impossible. All my dreams are coming, all my dreams are humming, all my dreams are coming true. Hi, I'm Dusty. We're here with Steph. We're going to ask her about what she wants to ask me about. Look at you, Dusty, just taking control. Is this, are we doing it? Are we podcasting? Yeah, we're recording. I've been on one podcast before, so this is a big deal. Well, I'm glad that this can be your second podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here in this conference room. So my favorite thing to do before someone comes is to basically creep on them on everything I can find on Google. Um, and you described yourself in an article as a stay-at-home bachelor. It's been a bit since I've introduced myself as that, but... <laughs> You're reading some old articles oh. where people are referencing even more historic conversations. But <laughs> that said, I do spend a lot of time at home and I am a bachelor. So I, I suppose the title still sticks. Um, but I think it was more talking about how you're an entrepreneur as well. And you always get to go on these crazy adventures. Yeah, I guess the t- that title is more a comical introduction to the idea that um, perhaps the career path I've chosen is a little less conventional and has me working from home at times and at other times elsewhere. Tell us what you do a little bit. Well, these days uh, I work in the film industry and I work in advertising and I often work where business and advertising and film collide. Um, but I also work on some of the more purest forms of film that, that aren't tainted by advertising as much. And, and uh, currently I'm wrapping up a project about bear-human conflict in Colorado. So it's called Bears of Durango, short documentary. And it has the cutest little bear cubs in it. It has many bear cubs in it, yes. yep. For the last few years we've been following biologists that are studying black bears and how human development affects their behavior and their population dynamics and a whole bunch of different questions as to how um, bears are adapting to the, the changes in their landscapes caused by us. And, uh, yeah, so that we've gone to dens, crawled in there, and visited the cubs in the wintertime and had the chance to hold a few of them. And Yes. Correct. They are very cute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to talk more about Bears of Durango in a a little bit, but first I want to talk about, so you were talking about these projects that you do, like with marketing and film, and they're really cool. Like you did, what was the campaign with Imagine Dragons that showed at their concert? Yeah. So um, I was a creative director at an ad agency and we had a chance to work with um, a pretty cool group of uh, doing some they basically created an interesting app that allowed you to donate time in exchange for rewards. And uh, it was co- part of it was called the It's Time campaign that I worked on. And uh, they used an Imagine Dragons concert to launch um, one of their major app developments. And, uh, and people that donated time to worthy causes could gain points through the app and then eventually got tickets to the concert. So, um, yeah, we had a chance to 
to attend that show when they came through town and see it our our creations play on the jumbotron which was pretty fun okay was that just a cool feeling to have everyone watching your video in a big stadium i assume yes it was very cool it's a there, there are a few things as exciting as sitting in the back of um, of a theater or in some any setting and watching a piece that you know exactly what's going to happen because you've watched it ad nauseum, uh, but no one else has. So whether that's a funny piece with jokes or an exciting piece or a scary thing or whatever, um, it's extremely rewarding to finally see the fruits of countless hours in front of an audience. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Super fun. So how did you get into film? When I was probably 14, I grew up playing the drums. And because of music and the friends I made through music, those friends got access to some of the earliest um, camcorders. Ooh. First the big VHS tapes, the full-size tape, and mm-hmm. then eventually the one of the first JVC camcorders. So started there and... Uh, yeah, I fell in love with the medium that you combine photography and and comedy and creative thinking and writing with music, and uh, it's kind of a a collection of the full the full spectrum of art. You know, kind of swirls into film in a lot of different ways. So, uh, I started there, and then went to college and did a film minor along the way, and uh, and then just kept doing it. That's cool. So you did a minor yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you remind me of. Did you ever watch Dawson's Creek? <laughs> I I know the name of the show, but I... well, the, the main character he just wanted to be a director, and so yeah, um, that's what it was reminding me of. But shoot. apparently, you weren't cool like me in watching Dawson's Creek. Going us, it wasn't cool enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool enough. No. <laughs> um, and so you also like to throw some epic parties as well. It's true. What have, what have you been looking at on the internet? <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I have to talk to your Facebook. You're like looking at past Facebook events or something? <laughs> hey, I have to do my research somehow. This is very thorough. <laughs> do I need to contact the lawyer before we go any further? <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so tell me more about this party where you had all types of flavors from the Cheesecake Factory. So you're referencing a New Year's party Whoa, that we that threw. Oh, New Year's? Yeah. So we threw a lot of parties and events, mm-hmm. um, whether that's music that we put on shows or it's stand-up comedy where our friends in the film industry, you know, share their jokes and things like that. Um, and I think it was just kind of bred into me. I have parents that really – my dad truly enjoys – seeing other people have new and ex- and great experiences. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction to be derived from that. And seeing so seeing people come together and have a good time is really fun. So yeah, that was uh that was like the first actual holiday party we ever threw. And I stole that idea from someone else actually to get every flavor. Pinterest? No, from a friend <laughs> named Annie. Oh. Um one of my older sister's buddies. Uh yeah, we, we got Every flavor of cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory, one slice. That's expensive. Yes, it was. It was like almost three. <laughs> oh, one slice. I was thinking a whole cheesecake. No, no, I was no. like, man, how no, are rollers over there? No, it was uh, one slice of every flavor. But still, that's like. It was like three hundred dollars. Yeah, 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 a slice is a lot. 
Yeah, and then we had tons of these little tiny taster taste tester spoons, so everyone could go around and say that they had tried every single flavor. That's cool. Yeah, so that was part of a pretty interesting assortment of activities that night at the New Year's party. It was good. So that's how we met was at your house, one of your shindigs that you put on. And, like, as I've been doing my research, I just feel like a creeper now saying that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're well prepared. <laughs> yes. Um, you talked about how, like, sometimes you like hosting an event because it's easier, like, to talk to people and be like, hey, like, are you having a great time? You know? And last night I did a little, like, it was a tiny little thing, but I haven't hosted anything forever. And just the anxiety of hosting something and being like, and it was like, at first, everyone that came was super shy. And so trying to get all these people that, like, it's super out of their comfort zone, I would just, by the end, I was like, oh, man, this is why I don't host things anymore. (laughs) But uh, do you ever feel that way with hosting where it's just... Oh, yeah, there there have been – I remember one of the stand-up comedy events that we did. Um, it ended, and I was so stressed out because of all the issues and troubleshooting we had to do. It was in our house. It was the first thing we did. We had 150 people come to our basement to hear stand-up comedians. We had all kinds of problems with the sound system. And I remember everyone was having this great time socializing afterwards, and the performers are kind of celebrating in the in the moment. And I was in my bedroom just laying on the floor – it's so like just trying to like detox from this adrenaline rush of a of a production we just put on but it, yeah i think there it can be exhausting and sometimes you second guess why mm-hmm. um but at other times it, it's incredibly rewarding um to be yeah it's a it's a fun I, I yeah i think you just you develop a taste for it i mean the the best pickup line ever is thanks for coming no one can turn you down right i mean there they have go. to at least talk to you yeah, if you say thanks for exactly. coming exactly <laughs> now i see why you throw all the parties that's not the only motive but it's a it's a perk <laughs> well okay so have you ever had i guess a time where you had an impossible goal and it didn't really turn out the way that you wanted it to yeah there, Do you want to talk about it? There, well, there are nu- <laughs> they're numerous. I mean, let's uh, hear all about. So, I, uh, this brings to mind a conversation I had with um, my really good friend, who his name is Micah Dahl Anderson, and he's a composer that does music for film. And he and I have talked about uh, taking risks, the, the role you know of risk in in the things that we hope to do and the things that we do. And he, he told me that he would really like to get a big cross stitch made, you know, the old school, like grandma stitch by stitch artwork that just says fail bigger <laughs> to hang above his desk. Um, because that's the game that we play and that's the way that we kind of approach things. Um, I mean, I'm three years into a self-funded documentary about bears. Who does that? I mean, you know, like you just, you just kind of throw everything we've got at it. And, uh, and there have been a number of, you know, projects that have felt fallen pretty flat on their faces for sure. But you come out of that knowing a little bit more, being a little wiser, um, being more selective and being more skilled in, in your ability to take on the, the next, the next round of, uh, of opportunity to fail bigger. But you only live once. You get, yeah, I mean, you can't play it safe, right? So, so the, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. You're asking for a specific story, though, right? I mean, you, you know, 
If you don't have one. I'm trying to okay. think of one that's like a happy. I mean, I'm not being thing. like, tell us a time that like it was. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> yeah. Let me think for a second on that. Okay. Because there have been, I've been in, involved with startups that have mm-hmm. like really crashed and burned, but those are like pretty traumatic like <laughs> endeavors. Well, let's see. What's a safe one to talk about where people didn't like lose their. Life savings through their mom's mortgage. Uh, I started a web business when I was in college, and I don't know. Like, I don't regret having done so, but it 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 eventually tanked. Um, we was were, it Napster? Napster was yeah. We started favorite. Napster. Uh, we thought <laughs> artists wouldn't mind everyone pirating their intellectual property and music and stuff. No, we did not start Napster. We started a website called DivvyThat.com, which was a platform where roommates could divide their utility bills amongst themselves. So like Venmo. Exactly. Pre Venmo. And <laughs> while we were running our, our version of that, um, Venmo raised like $9 million in series B funding, uh, mm. to, you know, grow theirs exponentially while we were still bootstrapping ours. But we learned a lot in the process and mm. we learned that our, uh, our marketing that was, revolving around the idea of getting even with your roommates was a little too vindictive for a Mormon (laughs) college (laughs) town where everyone's being told in church on Sunday to trust one another and give each other a second chance and be forgiving. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, you you learn, you learn as you, as you, as you crash and burn through some of those. Wait, so was that your like motto? Get even with your roommates? User. Yeah. Yeah. That was the slogan. (laughs) It worked, it worked to a certain degree, but had we just did, you know, we, we failed fast. I think that's that's actually an important thing to note is that we failed fast and we failed inexpensively and mm-hmm. we moved on and we're, the, we're smarter for it, um, having had that experience. So, yeah, if you don't try, you'll never learn. Yeah. I love that, like, fail bigger because, like, we're so afraid of failure, you know? But it's like really once you just start going, it's like, okay, we'll see what happens. So Yeah. Yeah, my risk tolerance is pretty high, but I also mitigate that by having a lot of irons in the fire at any given time. Um, and so, I, if you call it a portfolio, I try to keep it s- somewhat diverse mm-hmm. so that uh, if projects tank or if projects take an extra year to get off the ground, um, I've got three other things in the works that can can hold me over. While And a lot of the times we're working on small things while we're swinging for the fence on big things. and. And so it's this juggle of sustaining the day-to-day, trying to be responsible while building the future that you really want. And I can't say that I know this is all going to work out, but, you know, have faith and keep swinging. And are you having fun in the process, traveling all these cool places? I am, yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it's not, it's no bed of roses. I think people see an Instagram like, oh, there's a picture of gorillas. Well, and, and you were just in like... Europe in your Instagram. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still, still a little jet lagged. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, some trips are just a blast. Um, but so, working in film and doing that overseas uh, is not a vacation. It is pretty brutal, pretty taxing, but um, unbelievably rewarding experiences as well. I have a hard time vacationing sometimes now because I don't get immersed in the culture that, the way you do when you're out, you know, filming with boots on the ground, mm-hmm. getting involved with the intimacies of a culture or people or 
an entity that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Having a camera really, I mean, it's like being Mr. Rogers. You know, he walks around the neighborhood and everyone's just like, come on in and I'll show you everything. I'll teach you how to make pottery or, you know, whatever. Like yeah. the, the ability of a camera to open interesting doors to you is, is very real if, if you um, play your cards right. Well, and I think it's so cool what you do. Like as I was looking at your videos and stuff, because I think everyone, when you're like watching a movie you're, and you see like the person that they have like a hard trial in their life, you know, and then they're like rising above it and there's the great music and they're like getting their life together. And it's like in life, sometimes you're like, yeah, this is like my movie moment right now. And you're like, I wish I had someone following me around with a camera so that I could like watch this great triumph. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that, but, um, but like you actually are able to bring it about. And as I was like watching some of these videos and it's like, like the take time campaign. It's like at the top of these cliffs, people are hiking or whatever. It just makes you be like, yeah, look at all these cool things. Like I want to get up and, and move. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, we certainly aspire to make the world a better place and, and bring about positive change through the media that we create whether that's just brightening someone's day with a good laugh or actually, you know, shedding light on an important topic or, um, yeah, I think, uh, they say documentary has the power to give a voice to the voiceless and shed light on things that don't get attention otherwise. And, and, um, comedy I think has the power to, to, you know, lift people. And I think a good story anywhere, uh, as we watch it on the screen, we're seeing ourselves in those shoes and thinking about how we're overcoming our own difficulties. And so power of media is pretty fun. Um, when you start to see people reacting in ways that they come out better, having viewed, having, having worked through their own problems in the process of viewing your content. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I bet. Okay. And this is going to be a cheesy transition, but in talking about the voice of the voiceless, let's talk a little bit more about the bears of Durango. <laughs> Well, um, bears can't talk. I know. That's like the voice of the voiceless. There you go. Easy transition. <laughs> Got it. Uh, what would you like to know? So how did you get into this project? Because in like the film, you talk about how this is one of your like own projects that you're starting. Right. So you're referencing a Kickstarter video. Yeah. So our Kickstarter's ending right now. It's probably going to end prior to this being published. But, but and are you guys super close to your goal? We're at 98% right now. Yeah. Yeah. When I left home just a minute ago, it was a 98%. So yeah, we've got four day, three and a half days left. So, um, hopefully we'll put up some stretch goals and hopefully, um, raise a bit more before the campaign's done. But mm -hmm. yes, I'm really encouraging to see people coming together behind it. Not only just because they're my friends, but probably 50% of the people that have donated are strangers to me, which means they care about the, the cause which is that um, the state of Colorado spent a million dollars on a six-year study um, following these bio or basically creating an opportunity for these wildlife researchers to figure out why it is that human bear conflicts are on the rise. So bears breaking into your garbage cans, into your car, into your garage, um, you know, messing up your property or you know, scaring your dog or whatever, any, any kind of conflict, that type of thing is increasing. But uh, so is the population of humans that are moving into mountain communities like Durango, Colorado, where the film takes place. So um, they're looking at how bear behavior is changing um, 
as a result of humans kind of moving and encroaching more and more on their habitat and how it is that we can better manage them. So they put radio collars on at any given time. There are 40 different bears. Um, and um, they do that through some pretty interesting means and they check on them through pretty interesting means as well. And so that's what initially got me into the project was um, the fascinating revelation to me when I learned about it that there are biologists crawling headfirst into bear dens, um, completely unarmed and in the dead of winter um, with nothing but a, a telescoping pole that has a pressurized injection needle on the end of it with a tranquilizer. Um, and so they crawl in there and they poke the bear, which the bear's sleepy but still awake and is not super excited about them being there, obviously. And then they back out. Bear goes down. They go in. They have about an hour to take a whole bunch of measurements, um, download all of the data from the collar. So they're tracking all the movements of how the bear is moving through town. These are these are urban bears that are um, caught within, I think, 10 kilometers of town or something like that. So they they're looking at, you know, do they come in and use dumpsters? Are they eating people's fruit trees? Are they, or are they staying out in the wilderness? And how does that correlate with the acorn crop this year, choke cherries and, you know, natural foods. And so a huge data collection effort. Uh, and that's, that's what they've been doing. And it, they spent a million dollars on it, but they didn't set aside any money for publicizing that really um, specific to that project. Um, so once I filmed just a couple days with them, kind of just poking my nose in, trying to be Mr. Rogers, see what it was all about, uh, I, I recognized that, you know, there's the story had some legs. It's pretty interesting stuff. And the findings had the potential to dispel some myths about bears. And uh, so I followed it some more. And one year turned into two. And here we are. Uh, and so the hope is to put out this film that rather than you having to go read six articles in scientific journals that are so full of algorithms that they're <laughs> and then really, really I mean, I, I, it took me an hour to read like a page <laughs> just trying to digest this stuff. Um, and there are brighter people out there. So maybe the rest of you would have handled that just fine, but it, it's, it's not easy reading. So we're trying to figure out um, basically through the film, you know, sharing the story, sharing the interesting processes, which are fascinating in and of themselves of these people working with these animals. Um, but then also, the ramifications of the study. What we, what can we take away from it? What did we learn? And, and yeah, I lived in Jackson Hole for four summers. I, I've spent time in Durango. I live in Salt Lake City at the base of mountains right now that are full of, you know, all kinds of animals. And, uh, and I grew up in Idaho where there's a lot of wildlife. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty passionate about the idea that if we're going to keep infiltrating their habitat, we should figure out how to do that well. And I'm excited about the takeaways that the study has found. And I'm excited to share those. So that's uh, that's where the film kind of is headed, hopefully. Okay, so what are some of those myths about bears? Like, will they really not um, go after you if you play dead? <laughs> <laughs> that really wasn't part of the study. I don't. Oh, okay. Nobody was. Uh, nobody I guess was. I'll have to Google that. <laughs> nobody was seeking out bears and playing dead. Uh, so I can't answer that one. But. Uh, I think there's an assumption that once a bear comes into town and finds garbage, that it's kind of becomes addicted to mm -hmm. that garbage and will never go back. And so mm -hmm. they often get euthanized. Um, and the study is actually seeing that in times of scarcity, bears know that food is available in town and they'll come, but they associate that with a certain degree of risk 
mm-hmm. um, is what they've learned. And, and so in a, if the food year is bad in the wilderness, then the bear will potentially, you know, utilize more human generated food sources. Um, but if the food year is good in the wilderness, they're actually seeing that those same bears that came into town last year will go back to the wilderness and won't come into town. Um, and so if, if people can do a better job of bear proofing their communities, bears will cease to come. So one of the examples of that is 25% of the residents mm-hmm. of Durango, Colorado with bear proof garbage cans. Um, and, and then they had control areas where that didn't receive those mm-hmm. and they enforced people locking up these bear proof garbage cans. And then they looked at the number of conflicts, how many garbage cans were getting knocked over. They had a grad student drive around every morning on trash day at like 5 a.m. to see if people were compliant with, you know, locking up their garbage cans, the bear-proof ones, and then see how many were knocked over and how many conflicts were reported of bears getting into people's garbage. So they saw that if they figured out that if 60% of people would bear-proof their homes in a given neighborhood, the bears would actually stop coming to that neighborhood. Interesting. Drastically reduce their visitation there. And they would move on to other more readily available sources. So because of, as a result of the study, um, it was just announced that the city of Durango is going to buy bear-proof garbage cans for the rest of the city. An $800,000 investment um, to make that uh, and then, you know, mandate and put in public policy that will will make it enforceable that people need to use those. So it's pretty cool to see, you know, already that that's being applied there. And you think about that's just Durango. It's a small town, but there's hundreds and, you know, thousands of tiny mountain towns mm-hmm. all over the United States that could look at this, look at the film, look at the research, um, get, if we can spread spread the word about it and and consider similar action in their own management policies. So that's uh, – it's convoluted and we're still working through how best to share this in the film – um, but that's just one example of this huge data collection study, and then and when they crunch the numbers, the things they're seeing. In yeah, that. that's so interesting. So I lived in Alaska last summer, um, and I was on this small little fishing island, um, and for part of the time there was a, a little bear on the island, and it was interesting because like the owners were like, ah, oh, it's just a black bear, like he's not gonna hurt anything. And I would be like, are you serious? And I would still, like, go, like, run when it was dark. But I'm like, there's this bear. But it's just in Alaska, you know, like, I feel like the residents, their bears are just everywhere, you know? Like, they cross the street. And there's not that, like, I guess, um, bears, like, they definitely can be dangerous, but not the um, scariness. I think that, like, in the suburbs, if a bear came, you would be like, oh, my, what is a bear doing in my garbage can, you know? And so it's just that interesting difference yeah yeah i think um i think bears are pretty misunderstood as well um especially you know black bears they don't want to mess with you mm-hmm. um and if you can do your part to to you know make noise and let them know you're around then uh, it, it's funny actually i was we were tracking bears through the neighborhoods in durango mm-hmm. for part of the film and these technicians that i was with the wildlife technicians they would tell me you know people talk to us all the time saying oh our neighborhood bear what they don't realize is it's like our eight neighborhood bears. They they keep to themselves. They're sleeping <laughs> in the tops of trees during the day. Yeah. They're only out at night. Like uh, these animals live pretty peacefully, mm-hmm. or, you know, around people. Um, so, yeah, if we can do our part to to 
eliminate op- opportunities for conflict, then all the better. Because I like seeing a bear. <laughs> I don't know. I, I still, I only saw a bear once and it was like we were driving across the street in front of us and I was like, what the, like, it's just right there. But I think that like being in a lion's, or not a lion's den, a bear's den when they're like waking up, were you ever just like, oh my, like, that's a bear. <laughs> Yes, I very much was. Uh, like I've seen bears before, but certainly not in that proximity and not invading their personal mm-hmm. dens. So, the very first den I visited, they they um, they let me get in the den prior to them placing the bears back in it. So they pull the bears out to run these tests, and they monitor their you know oxygen and heart rates and all these things to make sure the bears okay as they're being um, looked at. Um, but so anyway, they put the bears back in the den. They let me get in first. So we go down this crazy belly crawl and hang a left into this, you know, seven square foot enclosure. It felt like it was so tight. And I wedged myself between two rocks. And uh, then the biologist came down and they start sliding these bears in. So there's a mother and a, a yearling. So there's two bears in the den. And on the way out, this is my very first den. I have no precedent you know, as to how this is supposed to work. But this biologist, she says to me, you need to be really careful of their noses on your way out um, because they're super sensitive. So just make sure not to bump their noses at all. I was like, you got it. No problem. So <laughs> you she, don't want your first day on the job to like... Yeah, I don't want to blow it, right? And <laughs> yeah. so, so I'm behind, like the bears are between me and the door, the opening my way out, the only way out. And... uh so I say door, it's a tiny hole. Anyway, the, but so the biologist goes out first and on her way out after she gives me this warning about their noses, um, she's got her feet up trying to squirm out this hole and take a hard right and go up this four foot passage and uh, her boot slips and just smacks the sow right in the nose, just nails it. And I'm filming this and I have the bear's head silhouetted against the profile silhouetted against the opening so i'm just kind of seeing the shape of it and its ears are down but right when she kicks it its ears slowly raise like straight up waking up and you can hear me in the footage just say i think she's waking up like the the adrenaline you know it's like that was there you could sense in my voice holy crap like i am so screwed right now uh because I thought she woke up the bear. I didn't know yeah. that the drugs took quite a bit yeah. longer to wear off, despite the fact that this <laughs> this yearling cub is head swaying from side to side and it's blinking at me. Like, you know, is this just going to snap out of it? But anyway, so yeah, there were, that was probably the, the craziest moment for me in that I was so unprepared for that. I mean, how do you prepare for that? Yeah. I'd never had that experience. So to, to be in there and, and have that happen was pretty crazy. But but being in proximity of those animals and seeing how little they, they don't they don't want you there, but they they're not super aggressive toward you being there either. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I think it it furthered the understanding, I guess, that I had assumed that black bears were, you know, didn't want to mess with you, and they they don't. Yeah, they just want to keep to themselves. Man, I'm just like thinking as I'm thinking about all your different projects, you know, like you're in a bear's den and then how you're talking about going to different people's houses and like doing different things. Like you probably have seen some really cool things. 
Yes. <laughs> like, I thought that was, like, a dumb, like... No, but, like, really, though, like, just crazy. Yeah, like, because yeah. how many people are in a bear's den, Dusty? Like, that's what you're doing for work, you know? Yeah, no, I feel super privileged to, to have had some... I, I mean, in the last year, it's been pretty amazing to be in bear's dens and filming critically endangered mountain gorillas and si- wait you sitting gorillas? yeah and sitting on the rim of the largest lava lake in the world all night with just one other filmmaker and watching the show as this thing's blowing up in front of us um film has been really an incredible way to have experiences that i think few people will you know get to in that crazy quantity that we've had the last little while so i'm very grateful for that and Hope it continues. <laughs> so this podcast is all about believing you're impossible. And for some people, their impossible is being an entrepreneur like yourself. And so what, I guess, is your advice to those people that are a little scared to, to take that, that risk? Yeah. I think you have to I, – I mean, I'm, we're talking – you're talking to someone who's in the midst of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. I haven't made it. I have in certain, you know – senses, I guess, had some great breakthroughs, but I'm a long way from, you know, writing a book. But you're able to eat every day, I assume. Enough. I'm a pretty, (laughs) I'm a pretty petite guy. So, uh, yeah. So I, uh, what advice do I have for, I guess you, you need to understand, um, your risk tolerance. You need to understand what degree of risk you're willing to take and how you cope with that. Um, and, and where your strengths and your weaknesses are and try to surround yourself with, you know, people that will mitigate the risk of your weaknesses as well. Um, and then, you know, once you understand that, you'll understand whether or not you should ease into something and, you know, keep a a different job and moonlight on a project that you're really excited about, or if you should, you know, save a bunch of money and cut it off cold turkey and go full bore and go nuts. Um, I think you have to understand that sometimes people look at the things that we do that I do, I guess. And they think, you know, you have this amazing freedom that I don't, I get that sometimes. And what people don't understand is that when you go home from work on Friday and you check out of the office, you leave your problems there with your boss a lot of the times, right? Your manager can worry about that over the weekend. Peace out. I'm going mm-hmm. boating. Yeah. Uh, if you're self-employed, if you're the if you're the master of your own ship, you don't get to check out of those problems. It doesn't matter if you're on the beach in you know Mozambique. You, those are still with you because they they're yours. They're they're a, it's an invisible burden you carry, and I think that. Um, People don't always realize that um, when they look at somebody and the romantic side of being self-employed or or pursuing some um, riskier endeavor, perhaps. But the other side of me would say, life's short. You live once. Are you really going to spend it on something you hate doing? Um, and is there a way that you could responsibly build you know, toward living the dream? whatever that is for you, you know, occupationally or otherwise. I don't think there's that we should vilify, you know, those that stick out 
a 40 year career with a company and have a great pension lined up for themselves and all that stuff. I think there's hopefully a lot of people doing that. Um, and hopefully the things we work on become increasingly more sustainable and lead us to retirement someday as well, or at least the capacity to do what we love until we die. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think you got to know yourself. I think you got to learn how you interact. Um, and you have to learn how that open-endedness of no one telling you what to do. I mean, how, how do you handle that? It's, it's a, it's a hard thing to deal with sometimes. Sometimes it's really nice to have that structure of like, all right, tell me to do what to do next mm-hmm. and I'll do it. I will do it and I will do it well. <laughs> you don't get that all the time, you know, so. You have to manage your time wisely, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and, and the other, I guess another interesting thing about it is that all too often I, we're working on projects. I, som- I sometimes have this thought where if I stop doing what I'm doing today, would anyone care? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if if you, if if I didn't finish the film about bears, if I didn't finish these six other projects that are years in the making, would anyone really care? And that's sometimes interesting. You know that like uh, early on, I think when you when you set out on these endeavors in creative work or entrepreneur entrepreneurship, there's that element of I'm the only one that is going to crack this whip. I'm the only one that cares at this point for now. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be, you know, really based on elbow grease um, until we get to a point where someone else cares. And I'm starting to see that. And that's really rewarding when they do. But going through that phase, there's moments when you're like, I could scrap all of this and no one would care. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of a weird place to play. But yeah. It's, well, and as you were talking about how you have projects right now that are like years in the making, I'm like, man, you have patience. I don't know if I could like <laughs> do that of like be like, oh yeah, in two years this thing would like work out. So yeah, maybe. yeah, I think uh, you have to come to terms with the fact that in a a lot of creative fields, I think your best work won't be for a long time to come. But you know, there's Ira Glass's famous interview where he talks about needing to get through multiple bodies of work to get to the point where your taste matches up with your skills. And if you're not doing it, if you're not turning through those bodies of work, um, you're not getting there. So you have to be patient with yourself and realize, you know, that it's important to keep doing these things here and now so that down the road you get to that point where you want to be. And you, and yeah. Yeah. Enjoy the journey, right? Yeah. I like it. Guys, seriously, go check out Dusty's videos. I feel like he was being humble about how great of a filmmaker he really is. Um, so his website is DustyHewlettCreative.com, and there will be a link to it on the pod notes at ConsistentRunnerGirl.com. So make sure to check that out. And you can also find him on, on Twitter and Instagram. But once again, thanks for listening, and make sure to put on your shoes, do your best, and believe in the impossible. All my dreams are coming. All my dreams are humming. All my dreams are coming true. Thanks again for pushing play and listening to this episode. If you want more information about today's guest, head over to www.notablepeeps.com.